morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today. Rocky, what do we have? Well, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis will join us to weigh in on Biden's new bill, making it easier for the U.S. to send military equipment to Ukraine. And then Julia Manchester and Rachel Bovard will join as our rising panel. We'll discuss a new law in Florida establishing a statewide Victims of Communism Day. But first, today President Biden will speak at the White House to unveil new details about his plan to fight inflation. The move comes as gas prices are again spiking across the country, nearing all-time highs at an average of $4.33 a gallon, according to AAA. That's about 20 cents higher than prices one month ago and more than a dollar higher than this time last year. The White House's scramble to regain control of the narrative on inflation comes as new CNN polling shows a majority of U.S. adults believe President Biden's policies have hurt the economy. And 8 in 10 say the government isn't doing enough to combat inflation. You know, I was listening to the radio on the way in and they were talking about some of these economic trends. They were talking about the rising gas prices and how unprecedented it is. What was so interesting is the solutions presented had nothing to do with raising wages to keep up with the cost of inflation. It was all about how to, you know, manipulate the Fed in different ways to, you know, have this downstream effect. But the core issue that people couldn't actually pay to keep up with rising prices was never really addressed square on. And in all the people they interviewed, it was none of the folks that are actually struggling with the ongoing economic conditions. And I say that because when we're talking about these polls and this disconnect between what Joe Biden's doing and what he should be blamed for, what he is properly credited with and what he isn't. I think it's partly, the confusion is partly because the coverage is so attenuated from people's real life experiences. Well, right. And, and the rhetoric coming from, you know, not exactly Biden himself, I think Biden himself, we don't often hear a lot of very firm commitments, but about, you know, Ukraine, mm-hmm. about the idea that this is going to be a conflict to the very end. A, there's there's more open acknowledgement that this is a proxy war mm-hmm. and more saying the quiet part out loud that regime change and the end of the Putin regime is the actual goal. And look, I have made clear on the show, I would have no problem with Vladimir Putin losing his power as a result of this strife. But if that is our plan, then we are preparing for a very long uh, escalation. We're, we're preparing to send lots of money, lots of aid, lots of weapons to keep up these you know, various embargoes and things we've tried to impose on Russia that are killing us here at home. They're raising the price of everything, including oil, most notably, but everything else, too. And I don't, are the American people ready for that? Are they ready for this to go on for a long time because of this battle with Russia? It, that question has not been put to them. Mm. They're certainly, if that's what they've, they voted for, they, they're not aware that they voted for that. Um, and that's, it's, there's a, some dishonesty about that being a major contributing factor and, all, and something we're going to deal with for the foreseeable future unless there is a really different plan to handle Ukraine. Yeah, you're seeing this zero-sum game of it all right mm-hmm. now when you see this newest plan for 30-odd and, you know, an initial 30 odd billion to Ukraine being initially coupled with some COVID relief that then got stripped from the bill. Democrats saying, oh, well, we can't get this through at this time. We've got to really prioritize Ukraine. Talk about saying the quiet part out loud. We're going to prioritize Ukraine over domestic relief. Even people who are very loyal adherents to Joe Biden see that and say that is absolutely not what we voted for. If anything, you were the guy that was going to withdraw us Mm -hmm. from some of these international conflicts. And now there's this incredible appetite for more. You saw him going down to uh, the uh, 
production plant, the weapons production plant last week and giving these speeches to the people who work there and say, well, aren't you proud that we're supporting Ukraine when there's a complete <laughs> inattention to what's going on in the country? And I think he should not be surprised mm -hmm. when poll numbers continue to trend the way that they have. Right. And he was supposed to be the guy who was smarter than all this because he watched Obama get hoodwinked into staying in Afghanistan. He said, nope. Nope, not me. Trump didn't get us out, even though he said he would. He got hoodwinked too. We're actually getting out. And then there's a new conflict. And it's like, oh, no, I take, we, yeah. have to, we have to be involved. So in other news on the economic front, even CNN slammed Biden after the president bragged about reducing the federal deficit last week. Fact checkers for the network say the president distorted reality by personally claiming responsibility for shrinking the deficit and attributed the decline to the expiration of pandemic spending. One economist told CNN that the claims are, quote, almost bizarro world and that the deficit would have fallen by much more had President Biden come to office and not done anything. Uh, I, a guy can dream. But, uh, Look, but uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to know the CNN fact checkers are still alive. I, I worried uh, I worried something horrible had happened to them. That they had been, retired with They'd Trump. been uh, hiding underground <laughs> or something. But no, they're still around. How about that? Look, this is fundamentally libertarian ideal <laughs> This is fundamentally the problem with trying to meet the right in their deficit hawkery. One, they never cared about the deficit hawkery. No, absolutely. To begin it's it's I mean, preposterous. They don't. Trump they and don't. his tax cuts and driving up the deficit. Bush and his tax cuts and driving up the deficit. This is what they do. They drive up the deficit, and then when a Democrat is in office, they rile against it. Democrats historically have brought down the deficit. This isn't, this isn't anything right. new. But when you're ostensibly on the left, and you are ostensibly believe in the power of government to help people in some of these broad, extremely popular social safety net programs and funding them and keeping people alive, especially in the middle of a pandemic and economic crisis. If you try to play the Republican game about deficits, you get caught in this kind of hypocrisy where, yes, you only have this. We're only bringing down deficits in part because your agenda failed, because you weren't right. able to pass the relief that, frankly, was very popular and that America's wa Americans wanted, because also the deficits don't matter. The country's bank account is not the same as your kitchen bank account. And you are further, furthermore, bolstering that perception of how the government budget works in a way that's going to ultimately hurt you down the line when you try to do anything. It, it is true that the Republicans believe in cutting taxes, not for everybody, a lot mm -hmm. of tax cuts for the rich, and then reckless spending. Mm -hmm. And Democrats do high taxes and reckless spending. <laughs> And so either way, you get reckless spending, which is a tax of its own kind. Look, I don't think that the extremely popular $2,000 checks, which many people thought were going to be recurring checks, were reckless spending. I don't think that the child care relief, the child tax credits that kept so many families afloat through the pandemic and long periods of unemployment were reckless spending. I don't think that funding Social Security and Medicare so people don't die in the streets in old age the way they used to in this country is reckless spending. You know, and so I think that we have to be really clear that we as a community, take advantage of these programs. And on a local level, the, the lot of people on the opposite side of the political spectrum for me are very excited about certain kinds of spendings when it comes to funding police departments and the like. So everyone just needs to be honest about the fact that they have their ideological priorities and that it's not about spending versus not spending. It's not about being pro-deficit or anti-deficit or pro-taxes or anti-taxes. It's people feel like money, their tax dollars, and the money that doesn't come from taxes because, again, that's how not how we, the budget works. How about we cut the defense budget by 50%? I would be Eliminate thrilled. the Department of Education. Absolutely Eliminate not, the FDA. <laughs> eliminate the CDC. Eliminate the TSA. Okay. Well... 
apart from living in a salmonella fueled dreamscape that you want us to live in, I think most people believe that there there needs to be some regulations over the things that we eat and make and making sure that there, there's some some checks there. I'm actually going to talk about that on my radar today. It's a different radar for me, not a defense of uh, Elon Musk, not a cancel culture <laughs> radar. I've got uh, I've got an economic one. You'll be kind of. I'm looking forward in. to hearing yeah. how you're spreading your wings today, Robbie. All right, but we're not quite done with this block yet. Yesterday, the president touted new federal investment in high-speed internet as part of the bipartisan infrastructure law. Let's watch. Thanks to the bipartisan infrastructure law, we're delivering high-speed internet infrastructure to every part of the country. And I mean that literally, every part of the country. The bottom line is this. My top priority is fighting inflation and lowering prices for families and things they need. Today's announcement is going to give millions of families a little more, a little more breathing room to help them pay their bills. Yeah, but look, I, I, I know there are different ideas about how this works. I have to think a massive new spending bill would itself possibly contribute to inflation. That so, is how it has historically worked. I understand why that's maybe not the exact reason for the, the whole picture for why we have inflation right now. But massive new spending is not usually the way to deal with inflation. So economists across the political spectrum of pushed will admit that nobody understands exactly how to control inflation. That is the great story of America. And what happens when nobody understands something is that everybody weaponizes inflation to advance their own political agenda. If you think spinning is bad, you'll say no more spinning. But as it's been explained to me by people like uh, Professor uh, Fidel Kaboob and, you know, um, Stephanie Kelston and people who you may or may not subscribe to their beliefs ideologically is that inflation happens when money is spent into the economy, uh, put into the economy and not spent, not used, sitting around, sitting in savings accounts. When you actually spend money into the economy by paying people wages to do a job that needs to be done, it circulates in a way that doesn't cause that same buildup. So an infrastructure plan is exactly the kind of spending that you should put into effect when you need to increase wages, when you need to employ a population, and when you need to most principally provide internet a basic good at this point that's necessary for kids to go to school, for people to do their work, to live in parts of the country that frankly need more people to stay there instead of flocking to cities. You don't have that unless you invest in it. This is, it's like saying, well, giving people medical services is going to increase inflation. Even if it, even if that were the case, you would need to do it because it's just a basic, a basic human need at this point. Right. But the, the other idea being that you put more money out there into the economy than the providers of goods say, well, there's more money out there. We can raise prices a little bit because people have more money to spend. Raise prices on roads and bridges and sewer no, system and electric lines. And, well, no, that's, but this is well, and, you know, and how much spending. Well, how much they charge for some of that stuff. Um, I think the number one thing the government could do is, like, just get out of the There's a lot of getting out of the way they could still do. On infrastructure, Robbie, you're really going to make the libertarian case. If there's ever a case to be made for the federal government, the there's whole point so, of the federal there's government. There's red tape that goes into building stuff. Right. Absolutely. No. Housing, our highway, housing problem, uh, crisis right. is entirely one of government policy that we're, restricts where you can build We're things. talking about... Broadband internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Build country. your roads, do your internet. Project, That's fine. Which is very That's fine. Com- That's is also fine. very popular among conservatives. So I think this is one that I would appreciate some follow through from, from Biden. That's fine. Oh. That should be uncontroversial. Have your roads, have your internet. <laughs> All right. I'm eager to get to my radar, which is coming up next.
So Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, I'm delighted to tell you. The U.S. is in the grips of a baby formula shortage, which is not delightful at all. Abbott Nutrition, a popular manufacturer, issued recalls on three of its products in February after a bunch of bacterial infections and actually two infant deaths, very sadly. Now, many stores are out of baby formula or are placing limits on how many uh, purchases customers can make in order to preserve their existing supplies. So one mother, Ashley Hernandez, told the New York Times that her preferred baby formula was out of stock and to get it on eBay would cost $120 for a single can. Pandemic-related supply chain issues have obviously compounded the problem, according to CNN. Quote, the out-of-stock rate for baby formula hovered between 2% and 8% in the first half of 2021, but began rising sharply last July. Between November 2021 and early April 2022, the out-of-stock rate jumped to 31%. That rate increased another 9 percentage points in just three weeks in April, now stands at 40%. In six states, Iowa, South Dakota, North Dakota, Missouri, Texas, and Tennessee, more than half of baby formula completely sold out during the week beginning with April 24th. Now, half of the 50 states are massively struggling with this shortage. And importantly, Abbott Nutrition is a manufacturer of a special kind of baby formula that's needed by babies with rare health conditions. Quote, if this doesn't get fixed soon, I don't know how my son will survive, one mom, Phoebe Carter, told Politico. Her five-year-old son has a rare immune disease and can't get the formula. She can't get the formula she needs uh, for him. Now, we're unfortunately way behind in fixing this problem, but U.S. officials could have made such shortages less likely in the first place by approving baby formula that is widely available in Europe. But per usual, the Federal Drug Administration has other priorities, like mindlessly making it more difficult for people to buy products they want and need. And in fact, it is technically illegal to buy baby formula that is approved and perfectly safe for consumption in Europe. The FDA, of course, has a long history of taking forever, years and years and years, to approve foods and medications that European officials have already decided are fine for humans. One particularly good example is actually sunblock. There are kinds of sunblocks that have been available in Europe for long, long long times, not approved by the FDA FDA here. I think if it's good enough for scientists in Britain and France, it's probably good enough for us, but the FDA takes a different view. The FDA and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention also screwed up the early approval process for COVID-19 testing, very famously, you remember that. Now, when asked about the shortages, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki praised the FDA, actually, for taking swift action to get the compromised baby formula off the market. Let's listen. There is growing concern about a persistent uh, supply issue with infant baby formula. Yeah. There's about a 40% shortage right now. Major retailers are having to limit how much people can buy, especially acute in places like Tennessee, Missouri, Iowa. Uh, this is partly an FDA issue, but it yeah. could be a Biden administration issue. I'm just wondering if you guys are planning on taking any steps to help remedy that. Well, let me first say, as you know, but uh, the FDA issued a recall to ensure that they are meeting their obligation to protect the health of Americans, including babies, who, of course, were uh, receiving or taking this formula and ensure safe products are available. That's their job. Ensuring the availability of these products is also a priority for the FDA, and they're working around the clock to address any possible... 
shortage. So what the FDA is doing, which while they're independent, they are part of the administration, is, is taking a no number of steps to address. That includes working with major infant formula manufacturers to ensure they're increasing production, because part of this issue is, of course, making sure they're stock on the shelves, right? Uh, and, the, and working with the industry right now to optimize their supply lines, product sizes to increase capacity, and prioritizing product lines that are of greatest need. What on earth is she talking about? The most useful thing for the FDA to do would be to stop erecting regulatory hurdles that make it harder for poor and working parents to feed their families. This is a case where you actually can just let the market work. It's the government, the FDA, that is coming between families and food for their children. This is my frustration. I, and I, you know, I'm, I'm following, I'm listening to this issue. I'm hearing just in the past couple days, I'm learning about it. Baby formula shortage seems that it's you know caused by this uh, recall, just terrible situation. Mm -hmm. And then I'm doing more research, and I'm learning that baby formula, widely available in Europe, probably safe. I I, I don't I don't know what you you think um, American scientists or the American appro uh, approval process is like way more intelligent or something than European. Pro probably not. Probably if British doctors no. think this is safe <clears throat> for British kids. We can let parents, we can just let them. Our government could say, you know, we haven't signed off on this, but across the world in, in civilized countries, they take it and they're fine. Go, go proceed at your own risk. That will be fine. Uh, but U.S. officials don't let us do that. And Robbie, so we have shortages. I, I was curious about the logic behind this when I looked at your radar. Uh, and so I went ahead and followed one of the links that you provided mm -hmm. to get some explanation, some clarity on why it is that there are barriers to importing baby formula from Europe. And the reason that was given in an article by Wirecutter, um, one of the reasons was that uh, European formulas were transported under, uh, they can't check the, the temperature conditions of the import. So that uh, European formula shipments may be detained or detected because they don't meet FDA shipping requirements. It would also be difficult to find out whether the formulas were subject to recall in the EU. So those were two reasons. One, we don't really know, just like we're talking about this in the context of a recall which I presume you think is a good thing that the poisons <laughs> soiled could make babies sick. What if more Bacteria kids? What if more kids starve and die because they can't get baby as a result? Well, of the Robbie, I, I, I think the ideal scenario. I mean, we're in is a little bit of a trolley problem here, but ideally, neither of those things happen, and what we're having is a market problem where there's not enough supply because there was a mistake at the factory that I think. We're glad got cut. I think there's some questions to be asked about why they're, they aren't able to remedy this and increase production at this point. I think that's what Jinsaki was trying to get to. Um, I think there's some question as to whether or not we should have better backups if there are essential goods like this in this country. I mean, we just came out of this or we're in the process of coming out of this pandemic where we had shortages with protective gear. We've had shortages with medical gear. We've had shortages with a lot of things that were really necessary to keep the country going. And part of that is that we've outsourced a lot of this stuff overseas. And that's a conversation that I'm more than willing to agree with you on. But this one, I'm not exactly sure how limiting the FDA, which caught this outbreak that could have caused a great deal of harm to babies in the first place, is a solution to what I agree is a problem the of the baby food. The recall is causing harm as well. But what do you want them to have done? Not recall the bacterial baby food that well, could cause harm to babies? Well, I, I'm just asking the question, what is going to cause more harm? I think the answer... The FDA doesn't consider that kind of stuff. <laughs> I, I think the FDA does consider that kind of thing. No, they and consider how can they... A power-hungry 
uh, totally unwilling to let free humans make individual choices, believe all power should be constant. They are the ones who get to decide what you are allowed to buy and consume. Doesn't matter if you consent. Doesn't matter if the other, the, the seller consents. They are interjecting themselves into this process to say they know better than you and your stupid family and they don't care what your kid needs. Okay, they so know better than you. let's play this out, Robbie. Let's play this out. Do you think that anybody should be checking to see if there are outbreaks in this baby food? I think, no, I think checking's a great idea, but... Okay, so when they check it and they find out that there's a bacterial outbreak in the baby food, right. do you think, what should be the process? They alert the public and the public can choose to go ahead and buy... I think, of a, la- if I think if a, if a, I, I think if a producer of, of food or ba- anything, baby formula, um, provides you poisoned uh, uh, food, you should take them to court and take them for millions of dollars. So you think that individuals should feed their babies tainted food, have the babies no. get sick, and then sue for damages? Well, what I'm mainly saying is I think you should be able to buy baby formula that's perfectly safe in Europe that the FDA says okay. I'm not going to allow you to talk. So I'd agree. It looks like the, the difference between, there are some substantive differences, this article points out, between American and European formulas, but it's not, most of them aren't, aren't health concerns. The concerns with the European formula aren't that they are not good for babies. It's that there's no regulations and, and there's no oversight in place right now to make sure that they're shipped to America in conditions that would preserve them as high quality and we're not in the same situation where we're again dealing out tainted baby food. Right. So I agree that part of the issue might be that we need to bolster, dare I say, even grow the FDA, expand its ability to do the kind of checks that would enable them to import baby food from Europe, as you're describing, whatever it's required, refrigeration tanks, inspections, whatever is required, because this is a real crisis that I think you've really rightly identified. I'm just not entirely sold that the solution is, in fact... If the FDA would allow these things to be sold, maybe there would be a profit to be made for the manufacturers in Europe, and they might create some infrastructure to sell their products here because they would be open to our markets. The FDA FDA doesn't need to micromanage where to... They're not very good at that. They, they totally screwed it, them and the CDC, the CDC together, totally screwed up the early testing for COVID. They said, no one else can do this. We're just going to handle this. And they got it wrong. They got it wrong. They're they not did. logistically competent. Um, and, yeah. they're, and they're cautious. And they, the sunblock stuff is, is fascinating. I, if you have time, you should look. It's taken, it, per, again, perfectly safe stuff that, that, that protects people from skin cancers in Europe. They've, they've not said... They've not approved here because it's very cautious. I, mean, I think I think non-libertarians don't always appreciate that. You know, are, are very concerned about all the bad incentives in the private sector and are acting like. Now I know you, you don't think that cops are angels. You don't think that uh, <laughs> our military advisors are angels, but our our regulatory agencies are not all angels either. They have no, a lot of bad incentives. No. They have a lot of protecting their own, I mean, the, the way everyone in the scientific, uh, in the government scientific community has really, um, you know, rallied around a defense of gain of function research, for instance, of defending those kinds of things, I, it sh- should make people wary about, you know, what other insider industry stuff, they're like, no, this is just our jurisdiction and we're not ever going to do this a different way because we don't want to give you more choices. I'm here for an argument that the FDA should be improved. Banned. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, I'll, I'll keep trying. Well, next up, protesters have gathered outside of Justice Alito's home in Virginia. Let's discuss.
pro-abortion rights protesters reached Justice Alito's home in Fairfax County yesterday. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin said they were coordinating with authorities to monitor the situation. Some users pointed out that Virginia law makes picketing outside of homes illegal, so Youngkin allegedly could have dispersed the crowd but chose not to. Yesterday, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell condemned the protest that took place outside of Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Roberts' Maryland homes. Let's watch. We've seen angry crowds assemble at judges' private family homes. Activists published a map of their addresses. Law enforcement has had to install a security fence around the Supreme Court itself. Trying, trying to scare federal judges into ruling a certain way is far outside the bounds of First Amendment speech or protest. It is an attempt to replace the rule of law with the rule of mobs. It appears this may possibly be flat out illegal. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki commented on the matter, saying, quote, we have not seen violence or vandalism against Supreme Court justices. We have seen it at Catholic churches. That's unacceptable. Adding that the president does not support that. And while we understand the passion, the president's position is to keep the protests peaceful. Saki also discussed McConnell saying a national abortion ban was possible if Roe v. Wade is overturned. She told reporters, quote, I think we are at serious risk when asked about the possibility of this coming to fruition. Mm. All right. I mean, this is something that's been hotly debated. People, some people who otherwise are very pro-free speech, free speech absolutist even, are saying that protests, which to date have been peaceful outside of the homes of these Supreme Court justices, is something other than the very protest rights that this, the First Amendment seems to protect. Where are you on this, Robbie? Well, you're right. Uh, and I, I call out uh, the left a lot on free speech-related hypocrisy, but it's absolutely true that there's free speech-related hypocrisy on the other side as well um, all the time. It is important to note, and I noted this yesterday when Kim and I talked about it, but but protest, I don't know what the Virginia statute about picketing is, I mean, and who knows if that statute is even constitutional. The First Amendment is very clear. You can protest in the street and on the sidewalk, not on people's lawns. Um, you know, maybe you can't, maybe there's a noise violation issue past a certain mm. time. And I, I think it's fine to ask or wonder whether this is a good and effective tactic, but mm. it is, it, it looks to me so far like it's, it's very clearly protected speech. So let's not be involving the police or, or talking about those kinds of things. As for the, the Supreme Court itself, you know, having, I think having to put up a fence around it is regrettable. I don't know what leg Republicans have to stand on around that. They put up fences around uh, the Capitol at a great yeah, distance after, uh, after what yeah. Trump's people did. So that's, you know, that's definitely a both sides thing. So some people have raised this hypothetical. They've asked if liberals, progressives, leftists, the broad left would feel uncomfortable if, let's say, there were some ruling that limited the Second Amendment rights and a bunch of Second Amendment protesters were outside of, let's say, Sotomayor's home. And I do think it is perhaps unprincipled to object to that as long as, again, the protests remain peaceful. Now, the specter of the Second Amendment and what it means does probably cause people's heckles in the back of their neck to raise a little bit in a way that they might not feel about this case. But I think on a pure one-for-one -one comparison, you have to be open to this in all kinds of contexts. These are public figures who, as many people have pointed out, have come down with a ruling, a 
draft opinion. We'll see what ultimately comes out. But a draft opinion, which seems to indicate that women, you know, are going to be threatened with much more significant mm -hmm. bodily harm, real bodily harm, than simply standing outside of one's home in protest. And people have also, you know, taken this moment to point out all of the, you know, that 11, I think, abortion providers uh, and people affiliated have been killed over the last 20 years or so, the kind of violent vitriol that happens outside of um, abortion clinics and women's health clinics, people who have served as escorts to women, which is a thing that has to exist because of how much violence is outside of these clinics. People who serve as escorts say that they've taken the bus to perform that role because otherwise their license plates will be tracked and people will follow them to their home with these kind of um, anti-choice messaging. So it does seem a little rich for folks who were never concerned about any of that behavior to now be concerned about the, 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 the protesting of federal judges who have so much power and who immediately were backed up by Congress who can't pass anything, but they could pass additional security measures overnight for the Supreme Court yeah, justices. I, and I would have no trouble if Sotomayor had a, an unfavorable ruling on gun rights or any other thing that I disagreed with and people were protesting outside her, of her home, I would say, say, well, they have the right to do that. It's probably not a great idea. Mm. I tend to think this is probably not a great idea. Honestly, my, my view to protesters in general is probably something along the lines of cool it because I don't, I, I think I, not for, not for, they absolutely have the right to do it. I will defend their right. I am probably not all that persuaded that protesting in general is a very effective use of one's time, even for political change. I think maybe that was not true in the past. I, protesting has obviously been effective at, at points in our history. Hmm. Um, I, it doesn't seem very, it seems very performative today hmm. and that there is a, and then the, the, the actual violence and destruction that occurs is, is terrible and is not something that communities want, even communities who care about those issues. Um, I, it, that's not that's not like a, a really hard opinion that I have. I, it, it, no, I think there's I, something I'm, to that. You know, what is the what is the upside of these things? What are the really here's where can we say here are the great social changes? Here are the great policies that were enacted because there were people in the streets with pickets, you know, occasionally getting out of hand. You know, really whole, making political people feel accountable. I think that's happened in the past in our country. I'm not I'm not saying that's always the case. Obviously, it just doesn't feel like there's a lot of that now. Yeah, I, I think that protests can be really effective in drawing attention to an issue that people don't mm -hmm. already know about. So I do yeah. think that, let's say, in the civil rights era, with the advent of television combined with certain kinds of protests, seeing the violence with which police acted on peaceful protesters, the attack dogs, the water hoses, seeing kids at lunch counters being having people spit in their face and pour milkshakes on their head, were really visceral images that shook parts of the country that didn't really understand the gravity of racial um, prejudice and segregation, it made it really hit home for them in a, in a certain way. But we've also seen the largest number of people in the streets in American history two years ago during the George Floyd protest in 2020. And because those protests weren't connected to any specific, well, there were demands, but those demands were really diffused right. and co-opted and minimized. And so you never got any there was never any real political threat. I don't mean you know violence, but a political threat of saying, if you don't give me these demands, that I'm not going to, you know, withhold my labor. I'm not going to withhold my vote. I'm not going to do anything that would actually cause people in power to want to capitulate. And so here, I'm very interested to see what, if anything, these protesters managed to do and say, hey, we're going to actually connect 
our grievances to something that you need from me? Are some of these women dominated industries like teachers unions, flight attendants unions, nurses unions going to say we're going to do a labor strike in order to get these rights? Because that historically is what has been successful about protest movements when they're connected with those kind of economic levers. Like well, that. and connect. Yeah, that's probably a good point. Connecting them to explicitly um, I, more identity type stuff has not, I don't think, worked very well. And I, I think of the criminal justice reform policing issues as a probably a pretty clear example of mm. this at this point. It, it seems to me over the course of my life, or well, over the course of the last uh, 15 years or so, that an emerging consensus that criminal justice reform was important. There was a lot of Republican mm -hmm. interest in it. I mean, even more recently, there has been interest, the First Step Act, mm -hmm. things of that nature. But it seems like, um, or, or even police violence, the, the acknowledgement of police violence has gotten more um, partisan. Mm. Uh, all of these things have gotten more partisan as the kind of protests like the George Floyd protests, Black Lives Matter protests, mm. have become more about race as the most important issue, which I know yeah. race is an important no, issue it's, when you're talking about criminal justice. But it, it, it's almost like, you know, if you're trying to convince you know, an old white person to get yeah. on board with criminal justice reform, you wouldn't, like your selling point wouldn't be, well, this is an issue that really affects black people. You'd be, not because it isn't, but because you're just going to be a little strategic about it. You'd say, this is about uh, account you know, a government unaccountable to the citizens. You know, anybody can be treated like this. This is, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a, it's a point that I've made sensitively in the past, which is that if we, if people believe, the, if the same camp that believes we live in a fundamentally racist country believes that, then why, a country that doesn't respect the lives of black people, you know, hashtag Black Lives Matter, then why would you pick an approach that depends on sympathy specifically for black lives instead of broadening the tent and pointing out that so much of the police overreach really does correlate with low-income communities, mm -hmm. including a lot of white communities that are terrorized very similarly by police offices out of control. So I think it's a solid point. Yeah. Well, we wanted to get to this, too. Uh, on CNN, the network pondered about the civility of the protests outside the homes of the conservative justices. Let's watch that. Obviously, what we see, the, the apparent arson at, a, um, at, at an anti-abortion nonprofit in Wisconsin is over the line. Violence is always over the line. But there are real questions and conversations today about protests outside Supreme Court justices' houses, particularly Justice Kavanaugh. Um, where do you think that line is? I think for a lot of people, the, a conversation about civility feels um, like it misses the mark mm. when constitutional rights that you believe that you had for over 50 years are about to be overturned. Political commentator and podcaster Stephen Miller fired back the network saying if anyone posted themselves outside her home, CNN would call it a crisis of the First Amendment and domestic terrorism. And yeah, that, that's the part of, uh, of it that right, I certainly get why someone would argue, well, it's OK this time or civility has to take a, ba a backseat because fundamental rights are being stripped away. But like people on the other side aren't arguing like they disagree that this is a fundamental right. Right. And there are di like different people right. think different things are fundamental rights. Yeah. And like that's I mean, that, that's the issue. It's, it's not that one side is saying, yes, we should take away fundamental rights. They contest that framing and liberals would contest some things About that the conservatives think are for the Second Amendment. Right. And, right. right. So I think right the better to be unmasked line... in the streets. Some of us would. <laughs> <Okay>. uh, would... <laughs> I think the better line to draw for um, Jared there was not the substance of what's being protested, but the quality of whether or not someone is, in fact, a public figure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of what's at issue is that these Supreme Court justices have an enormous amount of power to affect the lives of 
millions of people in one way or the other, whether or not you think it's a good thing or a bad thing. And the same is the case if they were, you know, uh, deciding on a Second Amendment case or any other issue. It's the power that they have that I would argue makes them more fair game for these kind of protests. And again, to be clear, these are peaceful protests. So in the abstract, the idea of uh, a young news commentator being protested isn't necessarily a problem if it remains peaceful. I think another part of that power dynamic is that the Supreme Court justices have close protection. They just got additional funding from Congress to protect them further. And if somebody were to decide, oh, I don't, I don't like what that journalist has to say, I'm going to come to their house, there is, I think, a sincerely a sincere higher risk and threat level to them and their safety than exists for these more affluent, more powerful, more uh, congressionally protected individuals. Fair enough. I do think uh, a lot of progressive or mainstream journalists uh, are, are playing an interesting game right now in the, yeah, we're not public, fit. we're just oh, lo lowly little me. I'm just a, I'm just a report. I'm just a documenter, just a chronicler of what's going on. I'm not in the game. Mm. So any criticism of me is harassment and dangerous and spreading disinformation or something. But, but me doing these things to you is just holding the powerful accountable. But CNN is, is powerful. I'm, I'm talking about yeah, the Washington no, no. Post a little bit and some of what they've been yeah. doing. And I don't think they quite get that. No, I think that's fair. And, and again, I don't think that it's completely beyond the pale, the idea of right. talking to people in, in their individual capacity. I mean, we just kind of went through this with the whole uh, TikTok, libs of TikTok right, scenario. Right, that's what I was referring to. Where people, you know, some people are, journalism requires you to go to somebody's house and talk to them. And if everything becomes your docs and it's a threat because you did your job as a journalist and went right. and knocked on somebody's door and interviewed them, then that certainly isn't good for speech and yeah. journalism. Yeah, fair enough. So you can visit the homes and protest peacefully. <laughs> Maybe don't, because why? But you can. <laughs> All right, we'll have more rising after this. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed legislation on Monday requiring high school students in his state to learn about the victims of communism. Let's watch. Today, uh, I am signing HB 395, which will officially designate November 7th as Victims of Communism Day to honor the more than 100 million people who have fallen victim to communist regimes across the world. Here with us to discuss is political reporter for The Hill, Julia Manchester, and policy director at the Conservative Partnership Institute, Rachel Bovard. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good morning. So I'll start with you, Rachel. You know, I'm curious if you see there being any kind of conflict between what is generally a conservative belief that there should be a separation between, you know, government and what happens at schools, that communities should be able to dictate their own curriculum, and what seem like these edicts that are coming down from the government, uh, the governor's mansion that are trying to get CRT out of schools and now this move to teach uh, what can only be described as a kind of anti-communism, pro-capitalism message. So I think that there is a distortion uh, of how some people look at sort of modern day conservatism, which is this bright line between you know, government and local communities and the two, you know, shall never meet. When in reality, I think, you know, conservatism, if you sort of study the philosophy, uh, has always sort of recognized 
preserving tradition, preserving traditional values. And I think, you know, where necessary, Ron DeSantis sees his role as stepping in and saying, you know, where, you know, choices are extreme at the margins, where you're going to say, no, you cannot do that in our state. I don't necessarily put sort of the victims of communism day in that bucket. I think that's pretty standard fare. I know here in DC, we have a big victims of communism gala every year. So I don't know that that necessarily crosses the barrier. But I do think Ron DeSantis generally, to your point, uh, represents a, a sort of new new right, new conservatism for the modern era way of approaching governance. Yeah, and Julia, does this show uh, that Ron DeSantis really is, you know, becoming this very, very national leader of, of the new right and of the Republican Party that he, uh, you know, I think whatever, regardless of how you feel about this, is a sign that he he has a very intuitive grasp of the right battles to pick and, you know, what is pleasing to the new coalition uh, on the right on on issues that where for for which school curriculum issues are so important. Yeah, well, it certainly shows that he's positioning himself as that figure. But I think we need to look at where this is all taking place. Florida, the center of the Republican universe right now. And I will also add that Florida is home to many immigrants and people who are descendants of immigrants who come from former communist regimes, whether that's Cuba, Venezuela, um, some Central American countries. So this is very much Ron DeSantis, very much trying to um, appeal to that population as well as talking about, like you said, Robbie, um, curriculum and school issues. He's sort of marrying them uh, in in this address, in this proclamation that he's giving. But yes, it shows that he is very much positioning himself as this national uh, Republican conservative leader. And I think that really all started with the pandemic and how he handled the pandemic. So it's interesting to watch Florida, though, because you obviously have Ron DeSantis in Tallahassee and President Trump, former President Trump, down in Mar-a-Lago. So uh, we'll see how that dynamic plays out between these two men. Yeah. And Rachel, I, I want to follow up with you. I, I feel, I think, a little bit similarly to Brianna in that while I probably, like you, have you know, an equally equal disdain uh, for communism, and I, I, I do want, I, I would want uh, it to be taught in, in schools, in history classes about the significant body count. I, I think there, it's probably, uh, there are a lot of cases where it's not, the, the, the evils of that political system are not, real, are not shown to the extent that the evils of, of fascism or, and Nazism are. And, and also actually just the teaching of later 20th century history is not always very good because they run out of time in, in the school year. So, but all that aside, it just, it feels a little, there is some kind of hypocrisy, I think, that's hard to get around when, when at the same time saying, no, the schools may not teach, you know, these ideas around CRT, which are kind of ill-defined and is many the most extreme ones I don't think should be taught, but because the idea is not very well-defined can kind of encapsulate probably some any things that are perfectly of race benign. Or, or any flaws in our capitalist Right, or just, or just beloved appearing <laughs> in the, you know, the school library or something like that. Um, do, do you see what I'm getting? Do you understand what I'm getting at? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think with I tend to look at this less as sort of curriculum control and more, as Julia pointed out, as a political positioning statement, to be totally honest. I mean, let's not forget, you know, Florida's home to a ton of Cuban refugees 
And those Cuban refugees are have very specific feelings about, you know, communism as a form of government. And we know that plays a very significant role in Florida's political dynamics. So I think there's a little bit of that going on. Um, you know, I don't know how the sort of victims of communism day language, you know, executive order is structured, if it's structured in a binding way that forces schools to do this. I, I somehow doubt it. Uh, but, you know, I do think he's he's simply saying, you know, look, this is something, you know, that is important for students to understand around the world. And it is true that that system of government has has led to more death and destruction than I think any other. So to the extent that it's, you know, highlighted or at least touched on, probably not the worst thing in the world. Uh, but I don't think it's, you know, as, as far as I can tell anyway, it's not necessarily a cudgel that's being wielded against publicly funded schools. Like you have to teach this. That's And that would be true, I think, more of the CRT debate. Well, Rachel, let me ask you this. Something that is being suppressed in the context of the CRT debate is a conversation about, um, you know, slavery and what some people describe as an American original sin. I know that a lot of people reject that language, and I understand the reasons why. But between 10 and 12 million African human beings were brought across to the Americas in the transatlantic slave trade by very decidedly capitalist governments. Is that part of the curriculum? You know, this is a situation where the the date for National, you know, Communism Victim Day is a day that will live in infamy. Infamy. It's a it's November. It's a November seventh, and it seems interesting to time it to the day that is so significant in the context of World War II, when of course it is was the Soviet Union that lost had the largest casualty count and ending that war with twenty million approximated people dying. And you know, is the context of the uh, arguable successes of various communist regimes and the demerits of various capitalist regimes being taken into account here. How do you assess who is a victim of capitalism in a world where, yes, America has the world's largest prison population by population and absolutely with two million people in jail? How are we tallying who constitutes what constitutes a victim of capitalism versus a victim of communism? You know, I think it, it, when you talk to most teachers about this, I think you know, it gets into a distinction between being self-critical and self-reflective and then straight out saying, well, the United States is an evil country on par with the Soviet Union, on par with Venezuela, Cuba, whatever. And I think that's what a lot of people reject. I think the point you're making, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is the ability to be self-critical about our own system is important in an education system, right? You, you want to teach people to think critically, not only about other countries, but about the system in which they live to be able to, you know, inform their own opinion about it, which, you know, later informs how they approach our system of governance on the world. So I don't think that is in particular an issue. It's just usually a matter of emphasis, in my experience anyway, a matter of emphasis in how it's framed. And that's what people reject about the teaching of critical race theory is that in so many cases, it's being taught as, you know, you are evil because of your immutable characteristics. You can never recover from the color of your skin, you know, and America is, you know, irrevocably stained uh, because of the sin of slavery. That, you know, we are never able to overcome it. I also don't think, uh, I mean, I don't want to start a whole argument here, but the slavery and capitalism are as closely necessarily linked as communism and political repression. How, how, how? <laughs> because there are lots of capitalist countries that don't have slavery. Slavery certainly has existed under capitalism, but it, it is not a necessary condition for capitalism. I, I would argue political that the, repression the, is very much in communism's DNA. The buying and selling of human beings, I would argue, is capitalism. I would argue that the insurance companies, many of some which persisted today, like Aetna, that made their money insuring the lives of slaves for their slave owners, meaning if a slave dies, the 
the and they got started in, in paying money out to slave owners. There was slavery slave before. Died. There was slavery before capitalism. In in the, and United, there is in the United States today. of America, the richest city in the country used to be in Mississippi because it was the seat of American riches in slavery. The most millionaires per capita were in Mississippi because that was the seat of slavery. And what CRT attempts to teach is not that. Whiteness is an original sin and an immutable characteristic and an evil. Quite to the contrary, the whole point is to paint a broader, more fulsome picture of where America came from so people can understand the relationship between capitalism and some of the ills that have come in this country, just like there are failures in political systems all across the world, communism not being unique in that respect. I, yeah, I'm not saying they're not related <laughs> and, and that slavery has not been in part, in part of America specifically, but uh, well, we got to give uh, Julia the last word. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just the national political reporter here. <laughs> Look, I mean, at the end of the day, like I said, um, you know, the debate aside, this is Ron DeSantis posturing himself and positioning mm -hmm. himself. Um, you know, we can talk about the ideological implications of this all day long, but I think at the end of the day, when we look at Ron DeSantis' strategy, his reason for this, this is because he supposedly wants to run for president. He has a big re-election year coming up this year. He wants to position Florida as, once again, the center of the Republican universe. I think that's what it really ultimately boils down to. Yes, indeed. And uh, I'm getting more and more interested for what a head-to-head -head Trump DeSantis matchup would look like. We'll see if that takes place. Uh, Julia, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Yesterday, President Biden signed legislation that will make it easier for the U.S. to send military equipment to Ukraine. The bill is called the Ukraine Democracy Defense Lend-Lease Act of 2022, which passed through Congress with bipartisan support last month. Ukrainian President Zelensky called the bill a historic step, adding that he is convinced that we will win together again and defend democracy in Ukraine and in Europe like we did 77 years ago. This comes after Biden signed a new $150 million weapons package last Friday to combat Russia's ongoing invasion. Since Russia's initial invasion on February 24th, the U.S. has sent more than $3 billion worth of military weaponry to Ukraine. Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, Defense Priorities, joins us now to discuss. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me back. So give us, you know, your uh, analysis of this of this new announcement by Biden. Well, you know, I, kind of tagging off uh, what Zelensky said in that uh, tweet you just mentioned there about how we're going to win now and we're going to turn this around. It's historic. And uh, earlier today, the uh, Ukrainian foreign minister Kaleba uh, also emphatically said, in fact, directly said that they are no longer seeking just to return to situation to the 24th of, of uh, February, back before the war started, they now want the complete eradication of all Russian troops out of their country, and that's what they're going for. Now, I totally understand why anyone in that situation would want that as an aspiration, but the reality on the ground, the combat realities, are, are moving the opposite direction. Uh, for all these claims that the Russian offensives are slowing down and are stalled and all that, they are making significant territorial gains and moving Ukraine back bit by bit in the Donbass. And if they complete some of these uh, tactical operations that Russia is doing right now, they could actually surround and destroy thousands of Ukrainian troops and continue the march in the direction of Kiev. Uh, so I, I think that some of those claims are a little bit premature. And I think they need to first stop about 
think about stopping the Russian offensive. Right. Well, if we could back up just for a second, this new legislation, it will make it easier for the U.S. to send weapons to Ukraine. How does this change the status quo? What 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 were the barriers to doing so before and how is it easier now? You know, yeah, that's also understandable, but it's it's deceptive in that the intent, the idea is if you can make things easier, you streamline the process, you get rid of bureaucratic hurdles so that you can send more and more weapons in. The idea is that if you get enough of them in, then you'll be able to stop the onslaught. But here's the problem with that. Wars aren't won by equipment. They're won by troops and soldiers. And just getting lots of equipment in while the Ukraine forces are continuing to suffer casualties uh, it's not going to help as much as people might think because you have to have trained soldiers how to fight this stuff. And it's so difficult to incorporate new equipment in while you're under fire from enemy onslaught. And uh, well, so I just think it's not going to work as well as people think. Well, what do you say to people who might be looking skeptically at the fact that Joe Biden just visited the Lockheed Martin plant down in Alabama last week? looks at the ramping up of defense production here at home, looks at uh, General Lloyd Austin's ties to Raytheon and the benefit that sending an increasing number of weapons across the world will have to our local arms industry and say, this is what this game is really about. Is that an overly cynical take? Well, I I like to think it's not. I I hope it's not. But you really can't ignore that uh, lots of people have, you just got to be admitted and honest, is a financial incentive to continue to support such moves. Now, it's easy to couch that in, oh, but we're actually just helping Ukraine. We've got to do this for the for the Ukraine people. And, and that may be true if it was actually going to make a difference. But right now, all the evidence, what's really happening on the ground shows that that's not the way to help the Ukrainian people. We need to be putting more effort, not in sending more and more weapons faster and faster into Ukraine, We need to be putting diplomatic efforts into both sides of this to say, hey, let's find a negotiated settlement that's acceptable, at least to both sides. Nobody's going to get all they want. But to just keep saying more and more weapons, it's not helping Ukraine. And, uh, you know, it's troublesome for the reasons you just mentioned, I got to say. Over on Fox News, Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton said the quiet part out loud that we're not just at war to support Ukraine, but to beat Russia in a proxy war. Let's watch. I only have 10 seconds left uh, for each of you, if you could. But if they wrap this in the Senate uh, with a Ukraine funding and a COVID funding, you guys okay with that, Congressman Moulton? Look, I'm going to support it because it's the right thing to do for Ukraine. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of politics involved, and there will be domestic debates here at home about other policies and whatnot. But at the end of the day, we've got to realize we're at war. And we're not just at war to support the Ukrainians. We're fundamentally uh, at war, although it's somewhat through a proxy, with Russia, and it's important that we win. I mean, that's just a fundamentally different position than the administration uh, has led up until, I guess, more recently— uh, the American people to believe, right? The, the American people, I think, you know, we're, are, are, they obviously, we, we want to help Ukraine. And I, I've even said, if, you know, if, if Putin, is, this is his downfall because of this, I, so be it. I don't care. I, it's a terrible autocratic leader. But if our policy is to work until he is defeated, this will be a military effort we could be in for years or longer. And, and are, the, are the American people actually prepared for that? Do they know what they're getting into? In moments like this, people like Congressman Moulton will admit it, but Biden hasn't really admitted it. If that is his goal, it's not clear, and it's not, it's not being presented to the American people as such. 
you know, I, I don't know if he's aware of it, but he just absolutely validated the the claims of Lavrov and Putin that were all they have been telling everybody that the U.S. and NATO is in a proxy war with Russia, which all of our officials had denied. And now here he is actually repeating the very statements of, of our, uh, you know, of the Russian leaders. Uh, and that's not helpful. Because you're absolutely right. The American people have not signed up to go into war with Russia in any capacity. If they get hurt in the process, if Russia gets hurt, I I agree with you. Nobody's going to shed any tears on that. But you play a dangerous game when you start moving down a path that you openly say you're at war with somebody, proxy or otherwise, that that could easily escalate. Because why is the the other side going to just sit passively by and do nothing? They're going to engage likewise in and proxy activities against the United States. So that opens, welcomes enemy activity against the United States. And that's not helpful. And I underscore that this is not going to turn the tide in the war against Ukraine. We need to be seeking a diplomatic solution to help Ukraine and to prevent our country from possibly getting sucked into a war. Yeah, it seems obvious, but it's worth noting again that Russia is a nuclear power. And when we're talking about fighting until a war with Russia is over, there's only one real way that that ends, which is why we had a cold war, a cold war for decades because of the understanding of what a hot war leads to. And, you know, we've just been through you know, the last 20 years of war in this country that was largely so unpopular because people felt that we entered it without the proper level of congressional understanding and approval, without the buy-in from the, the people of the country, the way that has historically been supposed to be the way that these things play out. And the idea of sneaking in backdoor through a po- proxy war like this, after the events of 2014, which have gone largely uncovered in the mainstream media, and now is a dispiriting kind of uh, repeat uh, of history. I want to give you a, a final word, Colonel. Yeah, and, and you know, that that is a really important point because only the U.S. Congress can take America to war, uh, you know, and that means they have to declare war. The U.S. Constitution is unambiguous on that, and they have to do that in support of the American people. If you get into a situation where you just declare uh, a statement of individuals and you start getting into a proxy war that could suck America in and we actually get attacked in the process, now there's no chance to do anything. If we get attacked, now that we don't have a choice, but we have to respond if, if we get attacked physically. And all that is because we're, we're just playing a dangerous, dangerous, foolish game but trying to move around the edges of it. And before that happens, the American people need to have a chance to to have their opinion heard. And Congress has to take action or this doesn't even need to go in the proxy war. This is something that's a problem that needs to get fixed. Mm. Colonel Davis, thank you so much for joining us today. Always my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we will have more Rising after this. Yesterday, the Pulitzer Center handed out its annual awards in news reporting. The Washington Post took home the prestigious Pulitzer Public Service Medal for its coverage of the January 6th Capitol attack and, quote, showing how the forces behind the siege are shaking the underpinnings of democracy. However, the New York Times won the most prizes of any outlet, including the Investigative Journalism Award for their coverage of U.S. drone strikes on civilians in the Middle East, The outlet also won the Criticism Prize for their analysis of the expansion and impact of the Black Lives Matter movement into culture, entertainment and art. Um, This, you know, these prizes kind of remind me of like the Oscars. (laughs) It's like they don't matter. (laughs) Well, and they're just giving them out to people that they, you know, that they side with, that they Mm -hmm. agree with, that are 
with them politically and culturally and their agenda. And it's like, I, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, I don't, I don't remember having any um, specific issues with those uh, two papers' reportings on those specific issues. I, so their reporting was probably very adequate. Uh, I, was the Washington Post coverage of the January 6th stuff so much better than other uh, mainstream media outlets? I, I'm, I'm not sure I would have said so, but okay, maybe it is. The interesting thing, obviously, you know, having it's not like it counts against you if you have bad content on other subjects, right? So they're, they're you know, comparatively uh, uh, not so compelling reporting on, oh, I don't know, uh, Hunter Biden laptop or, you know, <laughs> taking too long on that. Or, or yeah, I the, the New York Times recent reporting on Elon Musk, I found kind of uh, somewhat suspect or, you know, other subjects. Or their framing of the Ukrainian labs is just you're totally insane if you have some questions about what's going on there. But right, none of that matters, I guess, if you just produce one good story or a series of good stories on a subject that the prize committee likes. Yeah, it's tough because there have always been good journalists that work at institutions that I think are rightly criticized for various reasons. You had people like Chris Hedges, he was considered to be a leftist hero doing you know, Middle Eastern coverage for so many years before he was let go, in part because of his politics. So the idea that they might win an award for you know, drone coverage or topics that I think should be covered, uh, sorry, drone bombings in the Middle East or other kinds of topics that I think should be covered more, you know, I think is a good thing, but I think Robbie's point that we can't see what they're not getting awards for, the kind of stories they're not doing, the kind of stories about corruption in a bipartisan way that they're not doing, it could be the case that the stories that they have, you know, they're winning for are these more kind of, for lack of a better word, cultural, like, a, you know, polarizing political stories as opposed to work exposing corruption and aggregations of power on high, which I would argue is the primary goal. It should be the primary goal of institutions like this. You know, it speaks to that bias in their own reporting. And, and these things can be happening, you know, simultaneously. Like the Washington Post, for instance, I, I'm, I'm 99% sure it was them that had that, uh, that headline about how, you know, Tom Cotton was irresponsibly promoting the lab leak theory, and that's a crazy right-wing conspiracy theory. And then at the same time, Josh Rogan writes for The Washington Post, and he, he's produced some of the most terrific commentary on that question. It was one of, you know, the first mainstream journalists to really put it out there. So, so that's the act, same paper, same subject, and there's such a disparate coverage. Hmm. Well, that's my problem with all of this is that what yeah. they're winning the awards for, it's the actual subjects that they're winning the awards for that I'm yeah. having a bigger issue with than anything. Sure, of course, there are good journalists at all of these outlets. People need jobs. They're getting hired where they can get a, where they can get one, even if they haven't agreed with the paper in times and they maybe hope that they can get in there and change it. You know, of course. But the subjects that they're being picked to win these awards for. So January 6th. Uh, you know, that treating it like it was a giant insurrection. I've never agreed with that. I thought it was a protest that went way too far. We saw worse protests happening throughout the summer of 2020. I, I, so they there was that. And then they chose the coverage. Uh, Ukraine also received some awards. There was um, some coverage for Ukraine that, you know, and it's it's OK. They said, well, we're commending all the journalists on the ground in Ukraine. Yet there are journalists, other journalists that they didn't, that they condemn, that they call uh, Russian puppets, you know, like uh, Patrick Lancaster, who's in Mariupol, who when you watch his videos on YouTube, you know, you get a, a heart attack nearly every time thinking this guy is going to get shot. He's right there in the front line showing you what it's like on the front lines. Don't watch it if you don't want to see 
the gore of war, for sure. But, you know, it's just the subject matter that they're winning these awards for. This is just a big pat on the that back. That feels especially, especially true with the January 6th. Yeah, I mean, well, well, here's yeah. the thing. As much as I would prefer there to be coverage on the corruption of the people who work inside the Capitol, I also don't want to go so far as to pretend like it wasn't an unprecedented event for a mob to break into the Capitol and start rifling through Nancy Pelosi's office. Is that a coup? No. But it was a, it's a meaningful event that I certainly wouldn't compare positively to civil rights protests over the course of 2020 that were aimed at reforming our criminal justice system, which incarcerates more Americans than anyone else in the world and which we all saw on camera two years ago, strangle a man to death, right? So I, I don't, I don't want to create kind of a false equivalency there, even as though I certainly would be a cr cr critic of the emphasis the Democratic Party in particular put on persecuting the people during 1-6 instead of paying attention to the economic crisis that we were in the middle of in the course of the pandemic. But to win an award for it, I mean, that, you know, it's to win an award, like, oh, well, you just did this amazing coverage of a four-hour event that went rogue. And I understand that, yes, it was unprecedented. It was shocking. Many of us condemned it. It was disgusting. But, you know, right, it wasn't an insurrection. It wasn't a coup. There wasn't a real attempt to take over the government. Uh, and there, they failed to cover a lot of other events that were happening. I mean, I understand that there were largely peaceful protests happening in the summer of 2020, but a lot of it wasn't. And I live in the middle of an epicenter that was destroyed, fully destroyed. So, I mean, and where was the coverage on that? And instead, people just think that didn't actually happen when m many of us, millions of us, in fact, were living in cities that were literally having buildings burnt down and windows smashed and places looted. That wasn't, you, know, you can't say that that was, oh, because of civil rights movement, because people were mad. I mean, there there is more to that. There were people taking advantage of the situation, just like they did January 6th with the Capitol. People and were taking I, advantage I, of I it. I read that coverage, and perhaps some of that coverage is Pulitzer worthy. I certainly consumed quite a bit of it, and it sounds like you know you did as well. I wonder how much of the one six coverage, because I know that I personally was not as invested in it and didn't read as much yeah. of it. But I wonder, you know, you Kim and, and Robbie, how much of the one six Pulitzer winning coverage did you consume? I mean, I, I mean, I was there. I, I went. I attended the uh, the. Uh, I was covering it, and I, I didn't need any coverage of it to convince me that it was bad, like really bad. And shot. Like, I, I, I mean, the, I also condemned the protests over the summers and the amount of destruction and violence, which I thought was not nearly tallied, but tallied by the mainstream media to the extent it should have been, and you know, deserved far more condemnation and the sort of mostly peaceful framing. All bad, but then yes, also then what happened at the Capitol was also like extremely bad, and even if it didn't, you know, cause as much, I guess, destruction by volume because it's just one building. It is like a very pivotal government building, and and a very, a, a, among uh, you know being a, a riot taking place among people, I was absolutely assured would never riot. Where Republicans would never do this. Republicans are polite protesters, <laughs> and then, well, then they went and did that. And I, and I, I, I unlike uh, probably a lot of people on the right, absolutely hold Donald Trump responsible for it. I, it I don't was know how absolutely you could, his fault. I mean, I just don't know how you could avoid January 6th coverage. So, I mean, I felt like we were forced to consume it for well, that's, months that's on end. Well, interesting because I was trying to avoid it in some ways because I had my other priorities. But I did watch 
for coverage for my own podcast, I did watch the hearings and frankly was surprised by all of the facts that I didn't know because I wasn't reading that coverage. So I do think I want to be open to the idea that there was reporting that was meaningful, reporting about some lapses in security that are pretty significant and galling. Um, so the coordination between that we're now still just finding out about between pretty significant political figures, Jimmy Thomas and, and these 1-6 protesters, the, the fact of people coming disturbingly close to actually capturing and trying to, you know, lynch the vice president well, of the United States. I mean, these were details that had to be reported out. Whether or not you think they're more important than other stories that could have been paid attention to is a, is a different But you know what issue. I what I would say to that is in a lot of the January 6th coverage, it, it reminded me of like the Mueller investigation coverage or yeah. that there's this it's a mystery about to be solved and you know just wait for more we're getting to the bottom of this it's but we actually kind of know what happened and happened from the beginning. Like Donald Trump gave a very provocative speech after he'd been saying a lot of things that were not true. And then his some subset of his supporters who were there got really carried away and did this really bad thing. It's not like there's it, it, because it, there's a framing about it that like what what was going on beneath this? What was the agenda? What was the actually people spontaneously rioted after being, you know, roused to do so by an irresponsible political figure. And the mystery is, on most levels, not really deeper than that. And yet the media keeps talking about it as if we're going to get to the bottom. You're going to find out the real people. And, like, what happened is bad enough. The real story is that this is largely Donald Trump's fault. And I don't know why that ought to be, that, that, that ought to be enough, but there's, there's still some digging at it. In my view, anyway. <laughs> what do you think, Kim? Well, the, the, the prize has been given out, so there's no need anymore. <laughs> they already gave out the Pulitzer, so I guess there's no need to dig. We already know who's done the best coverage, and that's that. Yeah. That's like... uh, all right. Well, we'll have no, no Pulitzer for uh, rising, sadly. Yeah. I mean, did, did you get one in, in the mail, Brianna? No, but I'm sure I, I just haven't checked my mailbox for bad faith recently. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, as fellow millennials, you, we, I, I've never checked my mail ever. Right? Like, what is the mail? So probably, probably my Pulitzer from last year is sitting in the mail as well. Yes, of course. <laughs> All right, we'll have more rising after this. Town Hall is reporting Hunter Biden emails that reveal the big guy received up to 50% of some overseas business transactions made by Hunter, more specifically from deals in China. The big guy is purported to be President Joe Biden. A reporter, pre- a reporter pressed Jen Psaki yesterday over the business dealings. Let's take a listen. In 2017 and 2018, the president uh, routed $13 million of income through S corporations. Um, there are some ethics experts who are calling on him to divulge the specific sources of income in those revenue streams. Uh, Richard Painter, who ran for Congress for the Senate as a Democrat, um, has been among those who are calling for this. Uh, will President Biden be releasing uh, the sources of income that were in that three, $13 million, particularly uh, as, as there's attention being paid to his uh, son and whether he earned any money from his businesses? Uh, well, again, the president doesn't have uh, dealings with his family members about business, uh, and he has released decades of tax returns, uh, which is more than I can say for his predecessor. Ooh, GOP Congressman James Comer said that Hunter is a quote, national security risk, and added it will be a top priority to find out if the president was involved in Hunter's business deals if Republicans take back the House. Last week, Senator Ted Cruz pressed Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg over the merits of Hunter's laptop. So was the Hunter Biden laptop misinformation? I'm not familiar with all of the details of those stories. What I know 
is that Russia, notably, and other players, too. Except it wasn't Russia. It's an accurate laptop. Now the New York Times has acknowledged that after the the election. And yet the head of this uh, disinformation board happily pushed out that it was disinformation. That that is a code word for things that are politically inconvenient. Wow. Buttigieg just gave Ted Cruz all the rope to hang him there. Why would he why would he say, well, Russia, like, why would he do that? It really does make you worry about the disinformation board type person. Yes, it, um, it, it really reveals the extent to which I think that these liberals are still living in a bubble, not aware at all of the information that should be right under their nose. And moreover, they've really set themselves up after spending four years, I think rightfully trying to pin Trump to any number of instances of corruption, failing to do so. They've set a standard that this kind of corruption, and this kind of behavior is inappropriate. Now, instead of just being honest about this and nipping it in the bud, they think that they can butt Trump their way out of it. And I just don't see it landing. What do you think, Kim? Well, you know, one thing to really point out is that Donald Trump, even though, you know, we looked through all of his stuff and wondered if there was corruption and tried to find it, he had been a businessman for decades, right? So there were going to be some deals and and whatnot that maybe, you know, you could kind of look and say, well, does that qualify? Are you now qualified to be a politician if you have these deals in these foreign countries and whatnot? Joe Biden has been a politician his entire career. So how does he get, what was it, $13 million routed to his bank accounts? How do you make that kind of money as a politician without there being some sort of corruption? That would be, I mean, look, Donald Trump could make millions, even billions of dollars as a businessman. A politician should never be making millions upon millions of dollars. Furthermore, all of this was found in what years was it? 2017 and 2018. So Joe Biden at that time knew, everybody knew, they were, they were trying to get Donald Trump's tax returns since he was running for, uh, for election. That was a big hot topic. So if you're gonna be making money, and if you're gonna be making money in a way that maybe is gonna be shady, you're probably gonna figure out how to hide it, especially when everybody's talking about the current president not showing his tax returns. You're gonna know, I'm gonna show my tax returns. And when I do, I'm gonna make sure that it doesn't look like there's anything there. But he still won't disclose how he made all of that money. But I would sure like to know how a career politician is a millionaire like this. I wonder if Hunter thought, it's hilarious if, if so, he thought he was being clever referring to if that is who he's referring to, referring to his dad as the big guy, right? And they're like, oh, they're never <laughs> right. going to catch on to this. <laughs> they need more lawyers in the family yeah. to tell them a little story about Dockerview. Uh, Look, in, in the idea that a father, there's no business dealings between family, Jin Saki stating that as though that's that like a ridiculous. matter of fact, like, uh, how how dare you think a father and a son had business dealings? I mean, right. every every plumber's business in America is somebody's father and son co. <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. it's right. really it really speaks to the fact that they have not thought through this at all. It really it, it feels like Democrats think that they are immune from these kind of charges at a, as a matter of course. And to your point, Robbie, this coming up in a 2017-2018 cycle, but never being pressed in the course of a very densely populated Democratic primary, I think mm-hmm. is the kind of political negligence. This is exactly what happened with Hillary Clinton. When someone is coordinated, when there is a coalescing behind one person, when there is a suppression of stories that are germane to the public interest that are going to come back and bite you in the bottom, you know, two to four years later, it ultimately hurts the party, but they don't seem to really ever learn that lesson. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a mess. And so I, I think, I mean, what do you think about this, Kim? I would expect if Republicans take back control of Congress, as they're widely expected to, um, do you think we're going to see serious investigations here? 
Yeah, I, I think we should. I mean, there it's it's extremely suspicious. As I mentioned, a career politician to make this kind of money for his son to be his son, who is not, you know, like the pillar of of uh, all that is moral and good, I suppose, and making the best decisions in life for him to also be making this kind of money. Clearly, obviously, there's corruption there. That is so obvious. I mean, like I said, with Donald Trump, maybe not as obvious because he's a businessman. So, you know, they can make a lot of money doing a lot of different deals. But a politician and a politician's son who's been on drugs and I mean, this is uh, yes, they need to investigate it, but I would like to see a lot more investigations like this. I would like to see an Operation Car Wash that happened in Brazil happening here in the United States. I think we need to be rooting out corruption in our political system. Our politicians are running off rich. We need to be asking some questions as the American people. Yeah, well, importantly, it's, if something like that is done, it should be done in a you know nonpartisan, across-the-board way. I mean, part of the issues of what happened in Brazil was that it was used as a political weapon to take down people's political opponents in bad right. faith, because you can always find something on somebody, unfortunately, in our political systems. But certainly the fact that people like Nancy Pelosi have been in office for 30 years and have you know, tens of millions of dollars, and, and not just her, obviously, if you look down the line, sometimes... Uh, I like to get story ideas by just going to Open Secrets or Googling net worth of various right. politicians and just taking a gander. I mean, you you could write a whole book every single day. Well, how many of them, their first phone call after they get information like, oh, there's oh, the pandemic's going to be really bad, the public's about to find out, or anything else, the, their first phone call is to their stockbroker right. or their brother to coordinate who handles it or whatever. Right. Um, it, we've, you know, we've caught a number of them doing that and presumably... There's a there's a bunch more doing it. We just haven't caught them yet. They were right. slightly more careful about it. Yeah. Well, and, and to your point, Bree, I, I mean, I, I do agree. It will be a political it's politically motivated. I think if Republicans take uh, Congress, they absolutely are doing it under political motivation, similar to Operation Car Wash. But I think uh, then on the flip side, Democrats will do it to Republicans and maybe we'll actually get both sides cleaning house. Right. And, and maybe you know, exposing maybe. one could hope. I mean, if look, I hate to be that person, but if there was someone who were generally genuinely outside of the political system, someone who hadn't spent years as a senator from uh, MBNA, the senator from Delaware in the banking industry who was so corrupt, someone who I don't know, maybe was an independent senator from Vermont and had largely worked outside of the system, not taking corporate money for decades and decades of their career, I would have more confidence in that kind of an operation happening under them. But given the folks that we have, when everybody's hands are dirty, I think it's really hard, hard to clean house. Right, right. And there's uh, corruption is a huge problem, but there's some right people who are swept to power on an anti-corruption mandate, right, are often corrupt themselves, or then you, just like I you mean, said, Kim, are using the process in yeah. a you know, to go after people they dislike and, you know, ignoring corruption from their own faction or whatever. So it's a, I don't know. If a, a criminal difficult... turns in a criminal, I don't care. I just yeah. want the criminal. I yeah. don't care how it's, yeah. I don't I don't care how they're exposed. <laughs> yeah, no, expose them all. Absolutely. Well, not you, Hunter Biden. <laughs> a little humor there. Uh, all right. Well, stick around. We'll have more rising after this.